This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Ben Beheran from Creative Strategies and Tech Opinions on the recent CES 2017. In the second part of the conversation, we dive deeper into the themes that Ben have summarized in the earlier episode, mainly in the TV, home automation, and digital existence, and of course, self-driving cars. Welcome back, and with me is Ben Beharin, and I think in the last episode, we talked about the post-CES. I think we talked more about the overview and the general themes that you have actually spoken on, and of course, some of the interesting stuff that came from China, and you talk about the Shenzhen section, and I haven't been to the CES, so it's great to actually know about these things. I wanted to zoom down to some of the themes that you were talking about. I think the first part is about the conversation on bigger, brighter, thinner TVs. How are the Asia OEMs leading and how has the technology from TV are evolving? I mean, for example, Samsung has done a lot on screens and now Foxconn owning sharp LEDs. Are there any change that you foresee that's coming with TVs? Well, I mean, again, I think the, the biggest and most notable one is everybody is working on larger screen sizes. And so it's great that we're making that TVs are getting bigger and the market is responding to those larger TVs. But there's still some technology challenges with that, right? Because again, the, the point that I made was, you know, the, the density in pixel count that we're seeing with, that comes along with higher resolutions is allowing the market to go bigger so that we can sit closer to it. But, but again, as you stand, whatever it is, three, four, five, six feet from, or you sit that distance from the TV, you know, you're still wanting to see rich and vibrant colors. You don't want to see pixelization. You know, if you're watching sports, if you're watching, you know, soccer or football or, or baseball or tennis or whatever, you know, you don't want to see pixelation around fast moving objects. So there's actually still a lot of software that has to go into this to make those resolutions work and still have very, very wide contrast at those display so you've got things like increasing the megahertz rate, right? So moving to 240 and then possibly before beyond that in a megahertz rate. Even moving to things like high dynamic range displays, things that you know Apple talks a lot about and bringing to their iPhone and iPads around high dynamic range, which is something we're seeing in computer monitors, but aren't really seeing it, you know, sort of universally come to to big displays and TVs. So I think you know looking at some of the underlying technology challenges to not just you know, manufacture these displays at scale now at 55 to 65 and possibly even moving larger over the next few years as an average selling size. You know, those aren't trivial problems. When you look at, you know, I think a lot of the Chinese vendors are not sort of embracing OLED for, I think, a variety of reasons, obviously some because LG just owns so many of the, the manufacturing for that. But they've embraced, you know, you see a lot of from TCL and Hisense, for example, around quantum dots. I'm not sure if they brand it or call it something different in China, but basically quantum dots is a science around a liquid that basically lets these displays sort of have more vibrancy. So the liquid either goes on the display or it might go in a bar. TCL uses a bar, for example, and some of the things in the and the unit project through that film and creates what's very close to a OLED look, right? Deeper blacks, wider whites, richer color fields, broader color support for the spectrum. So that's how most people, even Samsung's taking quantum dots, they don't always call it quantum dots, they call it other things, but they're using that as basically their way to bring 
a much higher color gamut and viewing display in terms of, of the color range to these technologies, whereas LG is using OLED and they will continue to use OLED while others don't. So there's sort of that balance of I want my stuff, I want my screen bigger, I want to have richer colors, blacker blacks, I don't want to see pixelation, I'm getting a bigger display so I'm sitting closer to it and so I need all of these sort of underlying technologies to come along for it. And then I think the, the biggest one from a design standpoint, again, that makes this really hard is they're also trying to make these really, really thin, right? So they almost want them to disappear on your wall or look like a mirror. So there's zero, you know, almost no bezel. They're getting thinner. That's really hard. You know, I mean, it's really hard to pack all of that technology in such a wide area, all the component tree, everything that goes in and, and keep making it that much thinner. And that's really sort of been the race, right? And I think as Chinese manufacturing just continues to get better and, you know, ODMs in China are able to just learn and make this process so that we can get these really small displays in terms of thinness, you know, that's going to be really interesting. But those, those, again, these are really hard problems to solve. And they're not, they're not trivial from a technology, from a manufacturing standpoint. And we're just at the cusp of those trends. And that's sort of some of the things that I think, you know, we'll see a lot of innovation from China around. I mean, I've been... I've been continually bullish on this concept that Chinese OEM's best entry into the United States is with TVs. And I think Leeco is is testing that. And, and, and I think it's hard to start right off the bat. I mean, I think Leeco is going to need time in the market. They need to spend money developing their brand. A good example of this is I'm still, I'm still not sure why Xiaomi is not letting their televisions be sold here, you know, in the United States. I, I don't see any regulatory or... IP issues with them bring their TV here. And I don't know why they don't even offer it online, right? I think they've done a good job of getting buzz. I think there's a fair amount of, of people who are familiar with the brand. And if they could get into some retail outlets, their products are really good. And, you know, I think those things will sell. I'll just give you an example, right, that I think backs up my case for this. At Walmart, which is, if you're not familiar with Walmart in the West, it's, a, it's, it's one of the largest retail chains. They sell electronics, but they also sell clothing and they sell food and a lot of different consumer packaged goods. So during the, the big promotional season, which happens right after our Thanksgiving holiday toward the end of November, we have this event called Black Friday. Walmart was selling a 55-inch 4K TV for $299, which came under the Philips brand. But as you know, Philips licenses that brand. So it was actually from a Japanese company who took the brand and made it. So again, I would argue that Philips is an okay brand in the United States. It's not something that people fly off the, you know, fly out of their out of their houses to go and buy like they might a Samsung at that deal or a Vizio at that deal, etc. So the fact that a three hundred dollar four K display, fifty five inches, by a brand that's moderately well known, you know, again at Walmart sold just incredibly well, tells me that there's no reason why someone like Xiaomi or or Hisense or you know even TCL which is doing really well on Amazon for example couldn't have success at US retail with really good products i mean competitive products to the likes of Samsung and LG and others even if their brand isn't exactly you know the same as those i think those products will do well so i don't see why TVs can't be a really strong entry point for uh, for Chinese companies. And I think the temptation for someone like Xiaomi and even to some degree Leeco, as was Huawei, even though Huawei doesn't make TVs, is to say, well, we want to come in with phones. And that's just, it's, it's really the wrong strategy. You're not going to break the duopoly of Samsung and Apple in, in the United States in the West. But TVs 
it, I think, is a wide open playing field or other things, drones, smart home. I mean, these are all things where I think there's opportunity. And yet I see so many Chinese companies still saying, well, we want to come in with phones. And I, I, it just the market doesn't support that. So I'd love to see. I mean, I even tweeted after Xiaomi released that. I was like, look, I would I would buy that TV. You know, I would happily buy that TV. But we can't, you know, and I think that's that's the thing. There, there's opportunity there, and I'm not sure that Chinese companies are really playing their entry into the West with the right products that I think that both their their feature set and their technology, which is competitive with higher brands, are going to be able to, to compete against those, those, those higher-end brands, even if their brand isn't well-known, because we do see those dynamics in television, for example. We do not see that dynamic in smartphones at all. So then I come to what is the major subject was the year of the smart home. So voice hubs such as the Amazon's Echo and Google Home have dominated the conversation. I mean, where does that lead with Apple TV or other home automation gadgets such as the Nest? Well, the Nest, for example, I mean, I think you have, you have to look at sort of the smart home as something like the Echo from Amazon or the Google Home. Lenovo is actually launch, launching a speaker with very similar capabilities with a couple of Chinese companies. You guys might have might have caught that. So Lenovo will have a smart speaker as well available that will run a localized service for, for AI. But th- those are sort of the hubs, right? The, the smart home has to connect to something. Prior to these speakers existing, everybody's thoughts was, well, your phone is the hub of your smart home. So you'll use your phone to turn off your lights. You'll use your phone to adjust your thermostat, etc. right? So there's a central object that you that you interact with and you you interact with that central thing to connect all of your other things and what we're seeing now and so so again this is just an example of like if you've got a smart sprinkler system or if you have a smart thermostat or a smart smoke alarm or a smart crock pot or a coffee pot etc for the most part you're interact you're going to interact with those through your smartphone up to this point right so all these devices connect to one central hub as a way in which you control them and, and all we've done is we've moved that paradigm from the phone to something like the Google Home and Amazon's Alexa, where those become now the hub of these homes. So all of your smart home objects connect to it, and now you're talking to it as the primary interface to now control all of these other things. So something like a Nest, something like a connected crockpot, these are just endpoints. These are just connected nodes on your network and they're all connecting to a central source. And in this case, yes, they can still connect to your smartphone, no doubt, but they're also connecting to something like an Amazon Echo or a Google Home, and that becomes sort of your home, so your home hub. So you're, you're, talk, you're giving them controls, you're controlling it now all through your voice. So all that's really changed is we've moved from the phone as the central sort of paradigm to connect these things, and that will still exist, but it's not only the central paradigm anymore. You now have something like a voice assistant in Amazon Echo and others that can control these objects. Now, to your point about like Apple TV, for example, I mean, we the question has been around Apple, which is if this stuff really starts to take off, if if these these smart speakers that can play music, that can hear you, that you can talk to, and control your home and have all these sort of additional benefits. They'll read you news. You know, you can check the weather. You can do Google. You can well, you can do Google searches on Google. You can do Bing searches on 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 Echo. You can search the internet. My point. Check sports scores. I mean, all sorts of different stuff. If that takes off and people prefer to do those types of things on a big speaker that sits somewhere in their home and might be multiple rooms, then I think I think Apple's got to got to look at that and take it seriously and not, you know, not ignore that, not not say, well, I th- we think it's just your phone. 
that's great from a philosophical standpoint. But the bottom line is if the market says we prefer to do all of this with this product, I think Apple can't ignore that. So a big debate in the Apple community has been should Apple make one of these speakers? And, you know, they actually did make a speaker before, you know, many, many years ago. They had this fairly good, it was a big white box, sort of a dual speaker solution. So they're not, it's not like they haven't done that before. They're, you know, that was mainly an iPod accessory. You stuck your iPod into it, you hit play and it would play wherever you were, right? You could take it outside, you could do, you know, move it in your house. But but they did that before. And so so basically all, all the mark, all we're saying from that is it might make sense for Siri to exist in some other products than our phones and our tablets and our Macs. And in that case, maybe, maybe it's, or in our Apple TV, maybe, maybe a speaker makes sense, right? With their whole, their whole paradigm for the home. So I, I think again, the, the question marks around this from Apple is, is again, partially philosophically about their belief that you should just use Siri through your phone. Your phone already connects to all those smart home objects and that's all true and that's fine. But my point is, if the market really does like and prefer these kind of speakers that sit in the home that anybody can talk to, and they find that valuable, it's worth it's worth Apple not ignoring that, not letting Google or Amazon take an opportunity from them because they're unwilling to to adapt from just the phone or our computers as our primary interface to perhaps a standalone alone object that's doing a very different job, but is important nonetheless. Are robotics part of this new smart home narrative then? For example, we see a lot of home robots now sh- showing up like SoftBank's Pepper and LG's Hub Robot and you know a lot of these homemade robots that may be also coming up in the next few years. Well, I, I mean, I, I think we're on a much longer time horizon for you know true, true robots over the long haul. It, just as a point on this whole artificial intelligence narrative to keep in mind, you know, there really isn't anything in the market today, nor nor will there be in the short term that is a true artificial intelligence the way that that we think an artificial intelligence will show up, which is, you know, something that passes the Turing test, something that when you talk to it, you think you're talking to a human in its ability to understand you, understand context. Like we're we're nowhere near that. And it's gonna be quite some time before that happens. What we are seeing is very sort of dedicated things like, you know, you might have an object that has some level of intelligence, you know, that can recognize that you're a person or that's a dog, you know, that's a chair, etc. But it's it's really, really limited. The intelligence we talk about is still very, very limited. It's not sort of encompassing in the sentient AI thing. Again, we're a long way off from that. And I know that we're a long way off from that because we do not have the silicon compute power to pull off that yet, right? I, I had this conversation with some of the chief designers at AMD, you know, where I basically said, extract the client side, let's just talk about the server side for machine learning and artificial intelligence from a, from a chipset standpoint, from a computational capability. Where are we in relation to the PC industry in terms of computational power? And their sort of response was unanimously like, we're not even in the 1980s yet in terms of computational power for AI. We still have five years, possibly a decade's worth of really hard work that needs to happen from silicon manufacturers like Intel, like NVIDIA, like AMD, like Qualcomm, even Apple with their designs before we're even close to having a true sentient AI. And to me, that's actually a really important factor for robotics, right? Pepper's great, but you're going to want these things 
to be really smart. They're going to have to work out incredibly hard problems before you trust them in your home to do the job that you've hired them for, which might be someday, right, cook a meal, vacuum a floor, do your laundry, whatever, right? So these are the kind of things that I think are are still really, really, really big challenges. But at the same time, right, you look at something like a dishwasher, you look at something even like your coffee maker, you look at your, you know, your Zumba, you know, robot, your washing machine. These are these are technically robots, right? People used to do this stuff by hand and now a machine is doing it for them. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of, of this quasi-intelligence that we're talking about come to those types of an obje- objects before we see the market really grasp a, a robot. Again, Japan you know, and probably even your parts of, of China will embrace those things sooner than the West. I guarantee you that because the West culturally were just a little bit weird when it comes to robots, whereas J- Japan's like, give me all the, as many robots as you can. I'll take them right now. These, I think, are just cultural nuances that play out as well. But I look at this again from when is one of these things a true helpful assistant to us, the human being. And we're, we're quite a ways off from that. So I, I give that a much longer time horizon before we start to see more of these true sort of robots that, that are, again, like a pepper, invade our lives. But again, I make a notable point that even something like your washing machine, perhaps even your car, since it's going to drive itself at some point, these, these are actually robots. They're just in fairly limited capacity. Then we come to something much more closer, cars. Do I have to go to the CES or go now move to Detroit's Motor Show to see where mobility is going? Well, I, I mean, I think, yes, from an automotive standpoint, absolutely. I mean, if you, you need to go to car shores, CES was a great, a great showcase for what's just sort of universally happening from a, from a computational standpoint, right? If you go to the Detroit Auto Show or you go to one of these shows that, that, that happens at any number of different places, around around the country, you see more short-term stuff. Because again, like I said, CES exists for retail buyers to find out what they're going to carry in their stores that year. Similarly, the auto shows are designed for you know people who sell cars to kind of get an idea of what they want to buy for their show floors or their lots over the, this year and next year. The stuff that we saw at CES was really more often than not, three, four, five years away. So that was the benefit, I think, of CES compared to an auto show. Now, obviously, you hear them talking about autonomous features at, at these auto shows. You hear them talking about you know, all of the sensors and what's going on with the displays in the car and how those are becoming more computers, if you will. But what we saw at CES was much a bit more visionary, was a lot more, this is where we're going with this versus this is what's here today. You typically see at auto shows a lot more, here are our features for the 2016 lineup or the 2017 lineup or the 2018 lineup, not what you're going to see in 2020. So that's where, and I'll be honest, I think next year at CES, the auto part of this is going to be even larger. And you're going to see a ton of new features and things along what I'm telling you, which is, you know, hey, this is the the long-term horizon not the short-term horizon, but I think CES is going to become a spot where auto manufacturers do come, talk about vision, talk about where they're going, try to gain mind share around some of the things they're doing in automotive. So I, I think that's a much better show to see kind of where all this is going versus what's on the immediate horizon, like the auto shows, You know, which again, I think is fine because we're already, a lot of us are at CES. So you get a lot of value from everything else there as well as the auto stuff. Forget about the software part because I hear a lot about the software from Uber and Google and 
you know, whether Apple's rumored Project Titan. But are we going to see a self-driving car soon? Is that car coming from the traditional automotive companies or is it going to come from the technology companies? I mean, I think Benedict Evans recently had this very good article about uh, cars being feature phones, like feature phones today. And the iPhone hasn't shown up for cars haven't shown up yet. Where do you think this iPhone car will turn up from? Well, I think Tesla is probably our, our best example today of in that analogy of, of what it could be. I'm, I'm not sure that the likes of a normal automobile manufacturer outside of those who might be more in the luxury tier like, you know, Mercedes and BMW and, and a few others, you know, are really going to lead the way here with pushing those features and the whole computing stack in the car. So I, I would sort of look at Tesla just because again, right now, right, they have a, a self-driving feature that works in some spaces. Obviously it doesn't work in every spaces. I mean, full autonomy in cars is, is exceptionally difficult. Again, we're, we're quite some way off from having a, a true fully self-driving self-aware car of every situation that it can encounter on the road but we see right now obviously with tesla has some self-driving features particularly when you're on the freeway and some environments like that we're again we're, we're a long way off from that i think what, what tesla has has been showing is that they can make their car more responsive they can they can release a pro feature that makes your steering feel a little bit differently they can enhance the braking system they can do some of these things in fact in some cases they can they can add new features to autonomy so that your car can eventually take another step toward fully autonomous driving just by doing a software update so th these are the, the structural changes that's happening because you have to keep in mind that in order to do that what tes tesla did a complete you know, rethink of how a car is made so that really every aspect of that is not just connected to sensors, but is truly connected to the, is driven by software. Most cars might have sensors, you know, there's a computer that runs different features, but again, a car, a normal car manufacturer can't say, hey, I've, I've created a new braking system and your car supports it. So here you go, I'm going to give you a software update and you're going to get this much better, more safe braking system. Whereas Tesla's, Tesla can do that. That's, that's essentially how they've built the car from the inside out. So I think they're our best example of what that could be. I think they're the only example you know, that I look at to say, okay, these, these are the interesting things happening in, in automotive that sort of at a, at a high level encompasses all of the changes that we can expect to see. So for now, I sort of put Tesla in that ex in that example that they're sort of the Apple of the automotive industry that Tesla is kind of the iPhone of the automotive industry. I know there's some debate with this that I have with my friends like Horace Dedu for example and others that perhaps the uh, Tesla is more like BlackBerry than the iPhone but that's for an entirely different heated debate. But I think again the, the point is they're the ones that I think are starting to, to kind of change this paradigm, do some things that are new. Again, there's still a long way to go. The UI isn't good. We've again, we've got a lot of really hard technology to solve. But but I I don't think it's going to come from your normal manufacturer. I think it's going to come from Tesla or maybe Apple or someone new that comes into the market and builds something that really truly encompasses this kind of universal paradigm and does so in a way that everybody who sees it, you know, looks at it and says, oh man, that's definitely the future. So I guess we're going to look forward to this 2017 and see what is going to come out in this pretty, I think it's a very tumultuous year to start off with. So Ben, as always, it's great to talk to you. How do my audience find you? 
easiest way to find me is on Twitter. If you've got Twitter and can find me, it's just at Ben Beharin, my whole name, no spaces. Our website where you can read a lot of my writing is techpinions.com. And then often, you know, Creative Strategies, we do some blog posts where we post some of our research there, which is my primary company, our research firm, creativestrategies.com. So those are kind of three areas you can frequently find my stuff. And obviously, you know, you can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm, I'm pretty responsive. So always happy to chat with people that way as well. And I also want to recommend that recent episode in the Tech Pinions podcast you did with Stephen Baker from MPD on US retail trends. I thought that was a pretty good episode. Think about the normal buyer and the early adopter buyer. So you can find me at bleongcw at bernardlong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, TuneIn, and of course, Google Play in the US market. And of course, drop me a tweet, recommend us on Overcast, and even give me a good five-star rating on iTunes. So Ben, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Bernard. Happy to be here and look forward to next time.